Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by guest Jason Sweat. Jason is a web developer from Sand Lake, Michigan, who's been freelancing since 2011. He's historically built by the hour, but in the last couple of years, he's figured out how to start transitioning into value-based pricing. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell folks a little bit about yourself, what you do? Sure. So I'm a software developer. I have been for most of the last 15 years. I got started got started writing for code, writing for code. I got started <laughs> writing code for money in about 2000. My first job was actually working for my, for my dad. Um, but did that for a little bit and then um, got my serious start in 2005 doing PHP stuff, did that for a while, then switched to Rails and been doing that ever since. Um, the vast majority of that time has been either regular employment or hourly contracting. But then in recent, uh, recent months, recent years, I've been transitioning into other better types of billing, which I think is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Yeah, that'd be great. So we've exchanged a few emails leading up to this, and you described a, a really, sounds like a really big win that you had this year in the training space, which I'd love to talk about. Um, but in the pre-show, you also mentioned something about, you know, we were talking about how people who people will tend to kind of call themselves consultants when really they're just freelancers or contractors and that there is a distinction there. It's not like you can just say, Oh, I'm a consultant now, even though I think it's good to, to push in that direction to, to move yourself to be perceived or fulfill the role of a consultant right? because it's higher value. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the distinction between contracting and consulting? Yeah, it's a great question. So freelancing 101 is like, don't call yourself a freelancer, right? Because when you use that word and then prospects or clients hear that, it just, there's something about it that conveys low value. Like you're a, you're a tool that's to be used. Um, they, they tell you what to do. They make the plans and they tell you to implement the plans. Um, so it's much better if you're perceived as a consultant. And the difference there to me is, is that, Rather than being an implementer, you're somebody who helps formulate the plans and then somebody else does the implementation. So that's a much better term to use. Consultant is way better than freelancer. But I think a lot of people call themselves a consultant when really 100% of their work is contracting. So the difference between consulting and contracting is, is again, with contracting, you're an implementer. Somebody else is coming up with the plans. They, you know... They have an understanding of what the reasons are behind what they're doing, um, and they made all the decisions, and now it's your job to just do what you're told. Um, whereas when you're a consultant, you're more being paid. Okay, let me put it this way. A contractor, they pay you so they can tell you what to do. When you're a consul consultant, they pay you so you can tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it takes, and it, it's not just as simple as labeling yourself that, you know, one or the other, because in my experience, people who are used to being a freelancer have their, or a contractor, whatever you want to call it, have their entire business and mentality organized in a way that optimizes for being told what to do and for doing things like, you know, nailing down a really specific scope of work so that they can turn around and blame the client if it goes over budget. You know, well, I just right. did what you told me to do. And that, and so it's not as simple as just saying, oh, I'm going to call myself a consultant. Now you actually have to make that shift. And the, a big difference for me, I think when you, when you start to feel yourself or if, if you're a freelancer now, you call yourself a freelancer or a contractor now. And on a relatively regular basis, you push back on clients and say, no, I can't let you do that. That is a, a major mistake. The way a doctor would if you said, hey, take out my appendix. And they're like, your appendix isn't the problem. Mm -hmm. um, doctor's not going to take out your appendix just because you told them to. And when you start behaving like that, then it's it's safe to start calling yourself a consultant. Because you're right. They, they, they are looking for, the client is looking for someone who has expertise in a space that they respect they trust the the consultant and they're they value that honesty and uh expertise yeah and i don't think it's a binary thing like you kind of alluded to like just because you're a contractor doesn't mean you're not going to be doing consulting type stuff mm -hmm. some of the time hopefully you are 
um, like, you know, just because they're paying you to tell you what to do doesn't mean that you can't offer opinions and advice and stuff like that. Right. It's a good sign when you find yourself doing more of that. And some people will, listening to this will recognize that they do a lot of that at the beginning of an implementation. They don't charge for it or they just charge for the hour by it. Or it's perhaps even part of the, the scoping of the work and may not even be paid, you know, just to get the proposal together for the estimate. And that's right. Yeah. So if you recognize that you're doing that kind of stuff, then you're a candidate for perhaps orienting your business a little bit more around that more high value, uh, those more high value activities and less around the, the labor. Yeah. And just as kind of a quick side note, um, I found that it can be very difficult to start a relationship in a um, contracting kind of arrangement and try to move it more toward a consulting type arrangement because mm-hmm. you've already sent them the signal that you're a pair of hands. Yes. And so it's very hard to shake that off once you've sent them that signal. It's much easier to start the relationship off um, under the understanding that they're paying you for, for advice and guidance and stuff like that rather than try to retroactively become that person. It's like trying to get out of the friend zone. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's hard. I say often that uh, it's, it's probably no more difficult to attract new fresh clients for this new fresh positioning or maybe a new productized service that you're going to orient around a more prescriptive or diagnostic offering than it is to try and change the way past clients view you. Uh, it's, it's, it can be very tricky. I've seen people do it, but they're usually people who are more mature business wise and have really been sort of straddling the consulting slash contractor world with their clients. Here's another really significant thing about that is, you know, there's, there's one thing which I mentioned, which is the perception thing at the beginning of the relationship, they have a certain perception of who you are and what they're paying you for. The other thing is that, at least I've found, the kinds of buyers who buy contracting work and the kinds of buyers who buy consulting work don't have a heck of a lot of overlap. Like, for example, I'm, I'm thinking back to my client who I'm just wrapping up a, um, a month-long engagement with. This, this engagement was a total contracting engagement, and I was one of like seven developers all with the same same kind of role, just being paid to write code by the hour. The idea of having a consultant, it it just doesn't fit into their picture at all. Like if somebody tried to picture if somebody tried to pitch that to them, it just wouldn't compute because that's not part of their world. That's not part of their organization at all. But then there's other people, um, like for example, okay, this this contracting gig right now, this is for a software company. But I'm talking with somebody later today um, about a different project where it's not a software company. The people there, they know about their domain. I, I guess I can say that it's it's a grocery store. This this con- this uh, prospect is a grocery store. Um, they know about grocery store stuff. They don't know about software stuff. And so what they need is totally different. And we're starting from a different place. Um, and so, yeah, the thing I'm trying to convey, I guess, is those buyers are like two different groups of people. Big time. And that's what that can make the shift very difficult. So I'm going to go on a short rant really quick right. about Valley Startups because mm-hmm. I have a lot of students who start off doing staff augmentation, hourly, you know, typing semicolons mm-hmm. for Valley Startups. So, you know, I'm going to, I've gotten in trouble because, because, you know, Uber's a startup technically. I, I wouldn't say Uber would be potentially a bad client. They're probably, they're very mature startup. I'm talking about people who are who would want to pay you in passion and pizza and right. and equity and you know, expect you to work 80 hour weeks typing code for some phantom customer that maybe will appear someday. And hmm. they're maybe looking for their angel round or first round of funding. They don't really have any kind of product market fit yet. There's just basically an idea, and they they're rolling the dice to. You strike it, you know, oh, we're going to be the next Facebook. Okay. Um, the, the tricky thing there is to just to give an, uh, an example of exactly what you're saying is that a Valley startup, the CTO of a Valley startup is not impressed with your rails skills. They would probably rather do it, but they just don't have time to do it. So it's a situation where you're 
it's like a, the cobbler's cobbler's kids type of situation. A cobbler does not want to cobbler's kids. They got no shoes. They do not want to hire another cobbler to make those shoes for their kids. But right. if they have to, they will. But they are going to be the worst kind of client. They're going to be super mm-hmm. picky about exactly how those shoes get made. And they're going to be critical of every little detail because there's this pride issue. It's just so, so to convert that customer into, um, a consulting arrangement or to, to view you differently is, is exactly like you said, it's just the wrong kind of client and to convert them over is virtually impossible. Yeah. And it's a different problem. Mm-hmm. You know, like you mentioned that you, you had the, the cobbler analogy. Uh, it's a bandwidth problem. Whereas with a non-technical client, it's uh it's an, I have no idea what to do problem. Mm-hmm. And I need you to help me figure out what I need to do kind of problem. Two totally different kinds of problems. Yeah, I love that. That's perfect. All right, cool. So so you mentioned earlier, to shift gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier that you've moved into a little bit different space where you find it uh, much easier to provide a price and not be doing hourly estimates. Can you talk about that a little bit, the training stuff? Sure. And let me give a little bit of background too by like, I want to, I want to give an example of when I tried value pricing and it went horribly and contrast that with this more recent value pricing and it went quite well. Perfect. So I started freelancing in 2011 and pretty soon after I started freelancing, I read the book uh, Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss, which Jonathan, I know you're an Alan Weiss fan and I am too. Mm -hmm. But when I read that book the first time, I completely misunderstood it. I took the value-based pricing part of the book, and I'm like, okay, this makes sense. I'm going to start doing value-based pricing now. And so I went and worked for a startup that was local to me, and it was a total, like, from their end, it was intended to be a staff og type thing. But from my end, even though it really was a staff og type thing, I tried to value price it. But the way it ended up working out in practice is every couple weeks or every week or whatever, we would talk about what we want to accomplish over the next little bit. And I would take all the separate features that we were going to do in that sprint or whatever you want to call it. And I would come up with an individual price for all of those. And then I would submit those prices and they would say, okay. And then I would work on those things and deliver the features. And it might sound okay, but it was a total nightmare because there's just imagine all the overhead involved in like estimating all that stuff and coming up with the prices on a weekly basis. And then like having an individual mini negotiation (laughs) on each individual feature, it was just exhausting for me and for them. And it was like awkward and weird and stuff. Yeah. And then there's the issue of bugs. How do you charge for, for bug fixes and stuff like that? My policy back then was that, if I give you a feature, it should work. And so bug fixes are free. But I was applying these features on top of like a horrible legacy code base that was extremely unstable in the first place. And so it's like, how can I guarantee that things are going to be bug free? It was just complete insanity. And by the way, I made a huge mistake with that project that had like rippling effects over the next like 18 months that I worked on that project which was there was an existing product in place and I was hired to basically reverse engineer it and build a new version of it in a different framework. Mm. And so the spec, our agreement was the existing app, just build another one that does what this does. But the problem with that, as you know, Jonathan, and as I know now is you don't know everything that that original app does. And parts of the original one are broken. So right. are you supposed to reproduce that? Exactly. And there were all these like external communications that I didn't know about and all this stuff. And it was just, it was a total disaster. Mm. So there's a number of mistakes like compounded there. But my point is I tried to apply value-based pricing to a situation where value-based pricing did not apply. Yeah, that is fascinating to me because it would never occur to me to to there are probably lots of people listening that that are that are kind of following the same thought process that you went through at that time, which never even occurred to me that somebody would try and apply it at a micro level like that. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it I value price 
pretty much exclusively for, for an entire project with a defined outcome. Right. And it's, it's much more macro than that. It's very much like a, th- I mean, three months would be a fast one. I mean, it's usually six to 12 months and they're and looking. I think the key word is outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're pricing an outcome as opposed to pricing individual features like over the span of a week. Yeah. Right. It's like pricing a sprint. Oh man, that's brutal. I'm surprised they even put up with it. Yeah, I know. Well, it wasn't the greatest relationship in the world, believe it or not. <laughs> Somehow I believe it. Okay. So that's, <laughs> so that's, that's the oops. That's the, the before picture. Right. So what's the after picture? Great. So that was like 2011, 2012. And then fast forward to today. So like 2016 and 2017 is, is when these projects are surfacing. So in 2016, in the summertime, I got an email from a guy I knew just from the local Grand Rapids, Michigan development community. And I want to mention something that's, that's kind of relevant and important. I give talks at, at local user groups kind of a lot, and I have for like the last five years. So I knew this guy just from doing all these talks and stuff like that, just even from participating. I would have met him anyway. Hmm. Um, but he sent me an email and he said, hey, these guys I know uh, need an instructor for this boot camp. They had somebody back out at the last minute. So I had a conversation with these people and things went well. And we were talking about having me jump in. And it was a very last minute thing. It was like a five week boot camp. And the guy like a week or two before I don't, I don't know why, but he just was no longer available. So they were in a really tight spot. And we talked about doing something together. Ultimately, we did not. Uh, they ended up getting somebody else for whatever reason. But then a couple months later, those same people reached back out to me, the people who run the boot camp. And they said, hey, do you want to lead our boot camp next year? And so we talked about that. Um, I'm trying to think back to like, what questions I asked and like just how I generally approach that conversation. But the first thing I asked him was like, why, why do you want to have me do it? You know, like obviously you've been doing something before. Uh, why, why not just keep doing that? And what I'm talking about of course is, is the why conversation, right. which is when you ask why this, why now, why me, why in this manner, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another way you put that, Jonathan, is like try to talk them out of hiring you. Yeah, raise all the objections immediately because you're going to have to face them at some point. So you might as well do it before you have to write the proposal. Right. Because if there's any good reason that they shouldn't hire you, then they shouldn't hire you. Um, yeah, right. So, you know, try to get that reason out. And if you vigorously try to find that reason and you can't find it, then you have a pretty good case that they should hire you. Yeah, you made the sale. So like, let me just do a quick aside to people because I know that probably 99% of the people listening to this feel like they hate doing sales because Mm -hmm. they think sales is a particular used car slimy thing. But that doesn't have to be the way it is. And I'm almost hesitant to even bring this up because what you're doing with that that conversation, the why conversation and talking them out of working with you, you're, that's, you're, that's, you're closing the sale. Like that is the sale. And my, when I, by the time I write a proposal, I I can only think of one proposal in the, in the last like five years that I have rejected. And I know exactly why it got rejected. I totally screwed up the conversation. Like I, I didn't make the sale on the phone call and I just blew the call. And then I wrote a proposal anyway, because it was a huge client. And I really wanted them. And that was why I screwed up the call because I was like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in the right place mentally. I wanted the client too bad. I would have pretty much done anything to get this client. And of course that made me come across like a, you know, sort of servile in a servile way, which was not what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge mistake. So the, the, what I'm trying to call out though, is that if you do, I love that word vigorously, if you vigorously try to talk them out of working with you and you cannot do it, you just closed the sale because yeah. you, they now believe they have just told you why they can't choose any option except for you. And you are now convinced that they're, that they are going to benefit from the engagement. And as a side effect, you'll get a sense of, 
uh, how much it's worth to them, like the value of the engagement. So then you can say, all right, well, I get the sense, you know, in your mind, I get the sense that the value of this is X. So I'm going to charge them a tenth of X or, uh, you know, the price, I could price it at a tenth of X or, you know, half of X, less than X. And is that a, is that a profitable price for me? You know, is that higher than my mm-hmm. costs? And if it is, it's going to happen. Like you're not going to, the pearl is not going to get rejected. It's uh, it's, it's a way of doing sales in a way that isn't tricking the other person. It's a way of making sure really confirming that you're a good fit uh, in every way, personality, ROI, everything. And I think if more people recognized that it, it sales doesn't have to be skeezy, then, you know, they could embrace it a little bit more and actually be running a business instead of, just being told what to do all the time. Yep, I totally agree. And, and something that took took it a long time took me a long time to realize that sales is not mostly about persuasion. At least I don't think it is. I agree. It's more about connecting somebody who needs something with somebody who can give them that thing. Um, and there's kind of two steps. The first step is matching up the person who needs something with the person who can provide that to them. But there still exists a barrier which is a lack of trust. And so to me, the sales process is taking that barrier and removing the reasons they have to maybe not trust you. And so that all, that's all it is. It's, it's not about like arguing them into hiring you. Mm-hmm. It's, more, um, it's more identifying, first of all, um, Perry Marshall said sales is a disqualification process. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting quote because like again like i said before if there's any good reason for them not to hire you then they really shouldn't hire you right and so if if there's any legitimate reason why you should not work together either for reasons on their end or for reasons on your end get those reasons out there in the beginning because not talking about those reasons doesn't make those reasons not exist it just makes it so those reasons get surfaced further downstream after more time and money or whatever has been invested and it's just more painful Mm -hmm. uh, further downstream so get that stuff out there at the very beginning and i even say to clients or rather I, i say to prospects the very first thing i like to do when we start talking is ask the question is there any reason why we shouldn't work together and if so let's get those out there right now at the very beginning and people really appreciate that they appreciate that like frankness and they appreciate like the fact that i'm respecting their time in that way and so i think that's a really great way to start those conversations yes so uh, this is turning into a fun potentially very long conversation right because this is yeah i mean this is opening up all sorts of i'm thinking of a video i just watched uh, with, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who is just a ra- totally random in this conversation, but he, he is just fast. He, he, he'll start a conversation by saying, oh, I'm going to try and quote him. Uh, but it's something like it's, he said, no matter what the negotiation is, whether it's an employee asking for a raise or me trying to close an, a deal with Nike to do their marketing, he goes, the, the first thing I try and do is say, look, let's cut to the chase. I want you to trust me as fast as possible. So let's just get everything on the table. Why, if you don't trust me for any reason, what is it? And he's just mm-hmm. like, he just like, he's very iconoclastic, very bombastic type of guy. If you don't know who he is. Yeah. And he just like goes straight to the trust issue, which is really it, it is the crux of the problem in many cases. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I would be quite so bold as to like phrase it that way. Yeah. Like, me neither. Hey, is there any reason you don't trust me? What is it? <laughs> um, but you can, you know, you can bring up the same thing in different ways. Yes, I agree. I mean, it's a personality thing with him. He's just a crazy person. Oh yeah. But, um, okay. So let's, let's go to, let's switch yeah, to back to the story. Yeah. Sorry. I, I totally took us down a rabbit hole. No, it's, that's to Those were good things to talk about. Um, okay. So at this point in the story, I was having my initial contact with this prospect asking them why me? Well, it turns out that before they had used a training company to deliver this boot camp and there were some cost reasons and there were some like flexibility reasons why they wanted to um, go directly with an individual, somebody like me. Yep. And so we talked about that um, and there wasn't a heck of a lot to the, um, the possible reasons not to work together. The biggest reasons are usually like um, 
is this not the kind of work that I really do? Or is the kind of money you're expecting to pay not the kind of money that I typically charge? Right. Or just like timing. Am I not available when you when you need the help? And we were talking about this in like fall of 2016 when the when the boot camp happens in the summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. So my summer 2017 was looking pretty free at that point in time. So the availability thing wasn't wasn't an issue. And the qualification thing was was fine because the the technological part of it was pretty open ended. They were going to kind of look to my expertise to help guide that stuff. Good sign. Yeah. So that takes care of those possible reasons not to work together. So that just leaves money. Hmm. They asked me to send them a proposal and I said, sure, absolutely. I'll do it by, uh, you know, the end of the day, Friday or whatever. So, so before, so the, is the boot camp a public thing that they're like selling seats or is it a, an internal thing that they do for companies? Great question. So this is like a government funded thing in my understanding. Hmm. It's something to help. And I'm a little bit shaky on like this part of it. But the idea is that they want to help the Michigan economy. And so it's funded by a grant. And they take these recent computer science graduates. And they're kind of filling the gap between I just graduated from college. And now I'm going to be an entry level programmer somewhere. Hmm. They don't really teach all the skills in school that employers would like to see in an entry level person. So they're kind of filling that gap. Nice. Um, and the class size is, is 15 students. People apply and get accepted. I don't think it actually costs anything for the students. Um, it's all funded by this grant. Fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, that was an interesting factor in coming up with the price because there's not really a monetary ROI that can clearly be calculated there. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if I save you a million bucks, and I charge you $20,000 for that, that's a no-brainer for you. But in this case, it's a little bit mushier. Right. So basically, I, I thought about that, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what their ROI is. I don't think they know, and I don't think they can know exactly what their ROI is. So all I can do is come at it from the other direction, which is what would be enough for me. So I, I started with my cost. And I think what some people might not, people might not associate that word the way that I associate it. Um, and I got this from you, Jonathan, which is your cost is your time. You can't really do anything for free. If I spend a day working on something and you pay me X for it, I didn't, I'm not ahead X. Cause if I just, if you walk up to me and you give me a thousand dollars, then that's a thousand dollars of free money. But if you give me a thousand dollars to do a day's worth of work, it's not really a thousand dollars worth of free money. It cost me a day of my time to do that. That yeah, the thousands of the revenue, not the profit. Exactly. And if there's a job that I, you know, let's say like generally, generally I work for a thousand bucks a day, and I'm comfortable with that with that fee. But then somebody comes along and they offer to pay me ten thousand dollars for a day of work. The way I think about that, and I think different people could think about this differently. But the way I think about that is if my normal rate is $1,000 a day, but I get something that's $10,000 for a day of work, then my profit for that is $9,000. It could be argued that that's not really like, you know, the perfect way to think about that. But that's that's kind of how I think about that. So let me just explore that a little bit, because the way that when people because it's all utterly subjective. Mm hmm. And the the scenario you just described is actually valid, in my opinion, because if you're used to a particular level of income, then a a dramatic shift in a, you know, like all of a sudden somebody is willing to pay you 10x for basically the, the thing that you've been selling for a tenth of that, it's going to feel like profit. And, but if that keeps happening all of a sudden 10,000 per day is going to be your cost and it's going to take somebody to give you a hundred thousand to turn your head like that again. Exactly. Right. It's really a question of, and and this is, this feels very squishy to people, but I, I honestly believe that when you're talking about knowledge work, which is really what we're doing, the only way to calculate your cost is to ask yourself, what amount of money would I not even get out of bed for this? Like I, I would not accept X for this 
work. It doesn't matter what the reasons are. It could be that you just inherited a million dollars from your great aunt. It doesn't matter. The reasons will be different for every single person. It could be that you just paid off your house and now you have a, you know, you're, you don't have that $5,000 a month mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what the reasons are, but your cost is the least amount of money that you would accept for a particular gig, which is completely subjective. It changes on a, can change on a daily basis depending on what else is going on in your life and your business. But I can come up with no better way to calculate a cost. The, the screwed up thing is that that is what people will typically set as their price because they want to deliver the lowest possible price to increase the likelihood of landing the gig, which means they're making no profit. Exactly. So that is like that little scenario right there is super scary to me. Because that, that's one of the things that keeps people locked in this kind of feast-famine cycle because they're constantly working for what they consider to be cost. They're working for no profit, which gives you no days in the week to work on your business instead of in your business, which is it's just uh, it's depressing to think about. So, so dear listener, when you're, next time you, you figure out, well, what's the least amount of money I would take for this? Put some profit on top of that number before you send the proposal in or you're just breaking even. Right. And I would add to that as a quick aside, people price things lower with the assumption that a lower price is better. That's not necessarily true. Yep. Um, like I think Alan Weiss uses the Mercedes example. Mm-hmm. And my example might be a little different. But like if I go to the dealership and I want to be buy a $150,000 Mercedes, that's because I consider myself the kind of person who deserves a $150,000 Mercedes. And if you offer me a $40,000 used Mercedes, that wouldn't be more attractive to me. Even if the product is identical, I consider myself the kind of person who buys $150,000 cars. Mm-hmm. And so I want a $150,000 car. I don't want a $40,000 car or an $80,000 car. I want to pay a lot for it right. because that is like consistent with my self-concept. Yeah. it's. I heard a quote the other day that crystallized that beautifully. I think it was the, the CEO of Porsche or Porsche. I don't know how to say it. Uh, who, who said the second Porsche on the street is a catastrophe because you want to be the only guy on the street that owns the Porsche. Right. And if there were 40,000 bucks, that ain't happening. You know, so like I, I, you know, if you're that kind of person and those people exist, that's the key point. Those people exist that want mm-hmm. the Mercedes, that want the Porsche. Those people are out there and they want to be in this exclusive club. People like us do things like this, to quote Seth Godin. Yeah, people like us do stuff like this. Yeah, that, that makes sense. They want to be people like us. They want to be in that crowd. And, and this is why, this is why when you go to, a, you know, something like uh, a website like, an agency like Blind or IDEO, people like, you know, they've got this client list. Their positioning is horrible. Like IDEO's positioning is horrible. But if you go there on their website, but if you go there, you see this client list that basically does the the marketing job for them. Because any kind of company that wants to be in the club with Nike and Coca-Cola and Apple is immediately going to consider IDEO because they're they're like, that's the club I want to be in. The price is not the main issue. And the price actually prevents the rabble, air quotes, from getting access to the same level of, let's call it luxury. Mm-hmm. So this, it's, a, it's a very anti-Marxist kind of uh, <laughs> way to think about it. But it's... It's th- an important it, thing to understand, though. I think people make the assumption that cheaper is better. It's not true. I mean, sure, if you have nothing to differentiate yourself from your competitors, then you, the only thing you can compete on is price. So you should be constantly striving to come up with a way to differentiate yourself from your competitors, perhaps make yourself the only one in the category so that price becomes a non-issue. Well, and even if you have no differentiation, even if you're providing the same exact service, the kind of client that's going to pay me a hundred bucks an hour for development isn't going to pay me 10 bucks an hour for development. And there's a few reasons for that. One is because they, they think, how good can you be? Mm-hmm. But also, they're not the kind of place that only pays $10 an hour for development. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think we got way <laughs> off track with that. So I'll get back to the story. It's, it's good stuff, though. 
so yeah, I wanted to touch on that because it's super, super important to understand that. But um, this, where we were at with the conversation with, with the prospect was, it was almost time to give them a proposal. Now, before I agreed to send them a proposal, I wanted to get an agreement on what we were going to do. I wanted to get what Alan Weiss calls conceptual agreement. Because if that proposal gets rejected, I want it to get rejected because the price is too high, not because the stuff in it is wrong. Mm, Yes. So I made sure to get really on the same page, took notes on what we talked about, repeated that back to them and said, okay, here's what we've talked about. Here's my understanding based on what we've talked about. Is this consistent with your understanding? If not, how, blah, blah, blah. So I, I got that all straightened out, wrote, you know, about a half a page worth of stuff to summarize what we talked about. And then I did my calculation. So like I said, I could only calculate my, um, my cost. I had been charging 100 bucks an hour for quite some time for development. So I said, okay, 100 bucks an hour times 40 hours a week times five weeks is a certain number. I don't know what that is. But that was like my minimum price. Uh, that was like my, I wouldn't even get out of bed to hmm. do this. And so then I considered other factors. Like if I were to do this project that takes five weeks, I'm going to have to, uh, well, I'm going to have to move to where this boot camp happens because it doesn't happen where I live. Hmm. Um, so that's a cost. I'm going to not be working for anybody else during that time. And I'm going to have to wrap up any projects that I have going on before that. And then afterward, it's going to take some time again, probably to get another project lined up. Mm. So that's another cost. And those are fuzzy things that aren't like super concretely quantifiable. But I kind of figured out some numbers for them and put those numbers on there. I came up with a certain number. I guess I'll I'll, I'll talk about the numbers. I, my original fee that I was going to put on the proposal was 50000 mm-hmm. For f- five-week training, yeah. Right. Then I had a call with a mentor type person and he said, you know, you should really charge him more like a hundred thousand. And I thought, man, and he had, he had reasons and I could see that, you know, his reasoning made sense because like they were probably paying the guys before me something a lot closer to a hundred thousand dollars. But there's a certain limit to how much, how big of a check you can ask for. That's like, you know, there's a certain size of jump that's really hard to make just psychologically. And, and so I bumped it up from 50,000 to 65,000. So I put that number on the proposal. I wanted to provide options, but frankly, I couldn't think of any. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that a little bit if you want to, but I put that 65,000 price on there, submitted the proposal. And here's something that's really important. I didn't email them the proposal and ask, what do you think? Mm -hmm. I said, let's get on a phone call and go over this proposal. And I didn't send them the proposal until the time of the phone call. Because, hmm. And here's the reason for that. If they had any objections, I wanted to have the ability to address those right then and there yep. rather than have them go think about it and get back to me. Hmm. Interesting. I So I've, I've talked to a few. I never do that. and I, But I've talked to enough people that do that to make me think that my way is not necessarily the only way because a lot of people do this the thing that the thing that feels a little off about that to me and i'm not saying this is i'm not not saying this is i'm correct but the thing that seems strange about it to me is that that's an extra sales call and if i were going to if i was going to change the way that i do proposals and switch it to that that would take a lot of pressure off me in the first phone call, which I want. Like, I want the pressure in the first phone call to make the sale. Interesting. Yeah. So how did it, how does it go when you do that? When you have that follow-up phone call, did, was there a negotiation? Like, how, like walk me through it since I, I've literally never done this. There was no negotiation because we had gotten conceptual agreement before, right? So we had, we had taken the like disagreement on the scope. We, we, pretty much eliminated that possibility. Mm-hmm. And so the, the only thing that leaves is the price. Mm-hmm. So we got on the phone, we went over what the proposal said, and it was like, you know, is this in agreement with what we've talked about still? And he was like, yeah. So uh, let me just pause there. It, that feels awkward. Like, did you read it to them? Or did you guys sit there silently reading it? So what I usually do with that 
is I kind of go over the high points. I don't like read it out word for word, mm-hmm. but it's usually brief enough. Like I said, this one was half a page. It's usually brief enough that there's not that much to talk about. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we just kind of go over the high level points. Um, and then in this particular case, he said, okay, I need to get back to you regarding the price. So let me do that. And then we got off the call. And what were the, were the payment terms in there as well? The payment terms were in there. So I said that it could either be paid 100% upfront with a 10% discount if it was paid 100% upfront. Mm-hmm. Or the other option was that they could pay 50% of it upfront and then 50% at some later date. And those terms probably sound very familiar to you, Jonathan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, that's the way that you kind of you kind of do something similar, right? Yep. Right. Exactly. So okay. in this case, the person I was talking to was not the ultimate decision maker, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the sales rule is, is talk to the ultimate decision maker. I just didn't have access to that person, couldn't figure out how to get to that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up having one final call between myself the person I just mentioned who I had the call with about the proposal and the actual decision maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they wanted to talk about, which was kind of funny is like uh, a plan for what would happen if I died. So, <laughs> so this, I this, died hap- this happened to me yeah. once. Really? Yeah. Um, so if I died before this boot camp happened, <laughs> what happens? And, and so we figured out like a backup person and stuff like that. But after that call, um, they came back and they said, yes, we'll do it. And they said, we'll take you up on the 10% discount for upfront payment. Uh-huh. And what I didn't expect was that they interpreted it, they interpreted that to mean like they could pay me any time before the boot camp happened and still get the discount. So it was like a number of months before I got the first check. Oh. So next time I do that, I'm definitely going to include that like it has to be within like 30 days of when you say yes or whatever. Yeah, I'm not putting it on my calendar until the first payment is made. And because you had to make preparations. You described earlier extensive preparations. Right. And, you know, yeah, a good, good move. <laughs> um, and they did try to poke at my price a little bit. Mm-hmm. After we had an agreement, they came back and said, like, I don't remember how they worded it, but they basically said, can you do it for less? And I said, uh, let me see if I can remember exactly how I worded it. I said that, like, you know, in general, I'm open to, like, negotiating prices and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I have to have some kind of justification. Like, I'm not just going to lower it for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So if if we can, like, do less stuff. then that's a case where maybe we can change the price, but like we can't just lower it for no reason. I yeah. worded it better than that. Right. You kind of get the idea of, of where I came from. And, and they responded to that with that's totally understandable. And we kept the original price. Yeah. I've, I, there's a, I am not one of these people, but I, I know plenty of them who just always ask for a better price. Mm-hmm. It just, just like a reflex action. And in a lot of people, freelancers, contractors will, uh, they'll, they'll blink and they'll just, Oh yeah, sure. I mean, tons of people, even, even you could go into a retail store in the mall and you can even get away with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people are kind of hardwired to not pay retail, so to speak. Right. But if you've done, you know, if you've gone through the steps that you went through and you stick to your guns and say, you know, I, I, I gave it some thought, but I just can't make a business case for, decrease in the price, you know, is there, do you have some, some rational argument as to why, you know, it's, it's not going to work for you. I'd be willing to, you know, I, I don't, I try not to be stonewall or like a jerk about it mm-hmm. and say like, I'm open to conversation and be like, like thermonuclear polite, but the odds of me, the odds of me changing my price are zero. Right. Unless they come up with some, they could reveal some information that they did not disclose that would cause me to change the nature of the engagement, which could result in a lower price. But outside of that, I just make it a policy to never do that because it, it, um, it makes my life and their lives lives just way easier because they, they, I train them to just never do that. Like the price, it's kind of like Walmart everyday low prices. Like this isn't the price. So, unless you want to buy something else than what's described here, that's the price. So we don't even need to go back and forth. And I think another thing that can make it less likely that they'll come back with that question is the options thing. 
So what I could have done better is I could have provided them with, with a few different options. Absolutely. If you give them just one price, the question is, should we accept this proposal or should we not? But if you give them options, the question is, well, which one of these options should I choose? It goes from, should we work together to how should we work together? Mm-hmm. You can imagine what happens on the in the client organization when you send a proposal like that. You know, it doesn't just get floated up the chain to the real decision maker who then has a knee-jerk reaction to it. Instead, they have to schedule meetings, have discussions. It could take, it, it could take you know, 15 man hours of discussions. It could take 30 man hours of discussions. And what are they doing the whole time? They're talking about Jason. Mm-hmm. And there's just more and more Jason, and they're just constantly thinking about you, where other vendors probably just gave them, if they gave them one price, they're just, no, that's too high. No, that's that's absurdly low. They must be terrible. Uh, or this is maybe another candidate. And and how can we compare them to Jason? And then yeah. they're like, you know, so it's almost like it's almost like you're coming in as three vendors because you've got three options and three prices. Yeah. And I think the other like psychological part of that is it gives them a feeling of of control. Like mm-hmm. if you give them one single price, then you're like in the more powerful position. It's an ultimatum. Yeah, they only have the power to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they say yes, then like that was kind of you doing something to them, which they might not feel very good about. Yep. Whereas if you give them three different options, they have the power to choose one of those three and you didn't force them to do anything. They made the choice of what to do. Big, huge difference. So, but, but like you pointed out, you couldn't come up with two other options. Right. I could now, but at the time I couldn't think of any. Oh, interesting. So, so, so I'll, I'll list a couple examples. Yeah. Um, and these are like, some of these things are things that they asked me to do. And I said, yes, just because like, um, why not at this point? But like, if I were to do this again for a different prospect, these would be add-ons that would cost more. Mm-hmm. So here's one bringing in industry influencers to give talks to the group, uh, over Skype. Genius. That's awesome. Yeah. So like I happen to be acquainted with with people who have written books and stuff like that, technical books. And so those people could be brought in to just give a quick Skype and I'll, I'll offer to pay these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the amount that they're going to charge for that is, is pretty trivial compared to like the fee for for the boot camp. So like I don't mind paying them for that kind of stuff. Right. But that's something that could make a really good add on. And by the way, if you reach out to people who have written books, it's surprisingly easy just to like reach out and say hi and they'll respond to you and you can form a relationship. Like as someone who's written books and emailed people who've written books, it is people, people are, if somebody went through the effort, the marathon that it takes to write a book, they are happy to talk about it. (laughs) Especially when somebody like emails you and they say, Hey, I loved your book. It really helped me out. I have such and such question. You know, how do you feel about that, Jonathan? Is that annoying? Hell no. No, I love it. It's well, you you also get ones that are just either too fanboyish with like no actual question and just like three paragraphs of this is my life. Those are not mm-hmm. not great. And you also get ones that are a thinly veiled attempt to get you to promote their stuff. Mm. Those are super annoying, as you can imagine. And th- those are both basically spam. But when you get someone who starts off with like mind blown on page 15, the thing about the asking for hundred percent upfront change the way I do business, but there's something I don't understand. You better believe I'm going to write that person a three page email back, you oh, know, yeah. because they, they invested some time in the material. They are stuck in a place that makes sense to get stuck and is perhaps a deficiency of the book. It's, it's helpful. You know, it's, Mm-hmm. If you are thoughtful and um, and polite, of course, thoughtful and polite, you can, you can definitely get a response from an author. Yeah. So moral of the story is like if you read and enjoyed a book and if you have like a question that can be asked and answered simply, you know, reach out to that person and tell them that you enjoyed their book and ask your quick question. They'll probably be happy. What's not good is like a super in-depth technical question that requires like understanding your whole background. Don't do that. Yeah, don't don't write two paragraphs. Write three sentences. Right. Because if you write a giant email to me, 
it's going to sit in my e- in my inbox be like, oh, I'll read that when I have time. I'll read that when I'm not on my phone. I'll reply to it. Right. And then all of a sudden a month has gone by and I'm embarrassed to reply and then I just delete it. Exactly. So anyway, bringing in those people to give talks is one potential add-on. Mm-hmm. Another is what I call the um, the library package. So me like handpicking uh, 10 or 15 or whatever an appropriate number of books would be and actually bringing in those books and giving them that package, that's another add-on. I'm trying to think of other things, but you can kind of imagine like the lines these are going along. And I'm sure after I do the boot camp, I'll have about a billion more ideas. Right. And I'll try to I don't know if, you know, it might be like water under the bridge as far as adding add-ons to this one goes. I really hope not. I hope there are things that I can offer next year that'll be more valuable to them. Um, but definitely for for other clients. Yeah, that's all great stuff. The the industry experts thing is just that's a great idea. It's very low. It's it's one of those it's a perfect example of something that's low cost and high value. Exactly. Because if if you have the connections or if you can make them or if you understand how to approach people like that, it's really not a lot of work. Right. But the value is insane. Exactly. So it's, uh, that's a great, I, that's, I, I'm writing that one down. <laughs> Thank you very much. Awesome. <laughs> and of course, you know, bundling in other products like books yeah. and that sort of thing. That's also a big, uh, a, a pretty common thing to do. The tricky yeah. thing is, uh, just to call out like a training situation, the, the buyer, it sounds like, uh, you know, you said, well, I don't know what the direct ROI is or even if there is an ROI because this is like a grant type of situation. And really the, 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 maybe, you know, this and just didn't bring it up yet, but the thing that I would want to know it my, in my why conversation, I would want to find out how the buyers were being judged mm. because it could be that the it could be that they're being judged on some standardized test that students take annually after the thing and you could add a follow-up session with individual follow-up or or office hours with the students or some proactive drip campaign with the students to to refresh their memories about the material before the test Uh, who knows i'm just making stuff up but but it the the thing that it sounds like isn't 100% clear is how the buyers are judged on their efficacy. That's a great question. So, you know, if you if my my <laughs> hidden agenda on every client engagement is to deliver 100% client satisfaction, so they are like scrambling to hire me again. Mm-hmm. Cuz I'd much rather continue working with great clients than constantly looking for new ones. So, I want to find out and I'll, I'll almost, almost this literally come out and say, like, like, how am I going to blow your mind? Like, what can I do to blow your mind? What is the hugest possible home run that could come out of this for you personally? Mm-hmm. And it's not that you deliver, an, you know, in this scenario, that you deliver an amazing training to the students is kind of like the MVP, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, that's almost like taking for granted. It's table stakes. Right. How can you like go above and beyond to, I don't know, get this person a promotion or right. something like that? And it, you, you can, and people will reveal this stuff because they want it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And even if they don't know, they might respond with something that gives you an idea for how you can do that. Yes. Or it might, it might reveal that they're a gatekeeper and that you, and that you need to talk to someone above. So there's a couple real quick things I wanted to touch on because I know we're probably yeah, we running should, close to time. Yeah, we should wrap. So after that training engagement was uh, was a deal, mm-hmm. I lined up a couple other ones. And these other ones were um, through a training company. Mm-hmm. So if you Google things like Ruby on Rails training or Angular training or whatever, you'll get all sorts of training companies. And I think the first time I did this, I reached out to like um, – it was something like 10 training companies I reached out to one day. Mm-hmm. And then within a couple of days, I had like seven responses back. Mm-hmm. That's a crazy response rate. Yeah. So it's, it's very much in demand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I formed a relationship with this one particular training company. And they sent me to do a, um, a five-day Ruby on Rails class. This is actually just last week that I went and did this. So they paid me for that. They paid me $6,250. For that 
five-day class. That might sound like a lot if you're, you know, if I'm billing a hundred bucks an hour for a 40-hour week, that's four thousand dollars. So sixty-two fifty, that's better. Um, but my plane ticket and hotel had to come out of that, and there was prep work and stuff like that. So it really, it's probably about a wash compared to a forty-hour week. But it was much more enjoyable than a 40-hour week of coding, to me at least. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily easier, but it was more enjoyable. Yeah, there's, the stress and risk levels are in the basement compared to doing a 40 hours of dev work. Like right. there's, there's no debugging after a training class. Exactly. When you're done, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that, and that was good. And then I'm going and doing a different one. This is a three-day class, and that one is... $5,250, I think it is. But again, airfare comes out of that. So that one's like even worse money-wise. Yeah. But uh, at this point, I'm just kind of taking whatever training gigs I can get. Right. Because in the future, I know from talking with, well, you know, Reuven Lerner, Jonathan, and he's yes. talked about this on the Freelancer Show. He charges five-figure rates for like a, a week class will be like fifteen dollars or $20,000 for him. I'm pretty sure I can say that because he's said that publicly before himself. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on getting to there, but I think for that, I have to like know how to do training. Nobody's going to pay me $15,000 to do a class if I like, if I haven't done one before. Right. So Reuven's recommendation, there was a whole episode he did on training. If, if anybody listening is interested in that, uh, his recommendation was to go through training companies first and then make your way toward the direct engagement. So that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Get some street cred, get in front of people, become... It sort of build your expertise at delivering it and and oh by the way you uh, presumably for these um these gigs through the the booking agency you you're bringing your own content right you're not teaching their content for these ones i brought my own a lot of them actually provide the content for you really okay mm-hmm. yeah, yeah I've, I've done a few of these in the past i think through um maricana before they got bought by twitter i did a bunch of training for cisco and it's it's good money, but you're not really building your business, but you're building up your skills. So it's sort of a strategic engagement. Yeah, from Do those a business gigs standpoint. come from your books or some other way? I honestly don't remember. Um, I I know I did not reach out to them because I had never heard of them before. Somebody reached out to me, probably recruiter style, and was like, "Hey, uh, can you do you know a, a remote training?" It was all through WebEx. So I didn't have to fly anywhere, and mm-hmm. it was. Uh, it was in the thousands of dollars, but I don't, I don't really, really, it wasn't like amazing money, but it was, it was, you know, worth doing a four hour class on whatever responsive web design or something. And, you know, it was okay, mm-hmm. but it was more like, I was more interested in like, oh, well, like what's a great way to give remote training. Yeah. And for people who have only ever done hourly coding before, and you're wondering how the heck do I make the transition into consulting? it's a pretty good like toe in the water to real consulting if you can't figure out any other way to do it, which I, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And this, this is helping me get there. Right. It's because people are used to paying for training as like uh as like a bulk purchase and not, they don't really, it's the hours. I mean, the hours come up cause it's like, well, you know, it's going to be nine to five for five. Like, yeah, but that's not really the, that's not really the focus. They're paying for the outcome. Yeah. They're paying for the outcome. And, and I'm curious how many, people are in the 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 two that you just described the 6250 and the and the 5000 something one is that like limited to a certain number of students or they just try and pack the house the first one was six students the second one the three-day class that's going to be like 25 students wow that's a lot yeah the the 25 student one that's like open enrollment so just whoever at that company can go and take that class if they want to which leads to all sorts of interesting stuff too, like different backgrounds and experience levels and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, so we'll see, but yeah, way different class sizes. That's awesome. All right, well, we should wrap up, but I will tell people that they should search out Reuben Lerner if they're interested in how to get started with training. He's mm-hmm. one of the one of my co-panelists on the Freelancers Show podcast, which we've been referencing here. So, Jason. Uh, where can people get in touch with you online or where, where can people find out more about you? I think if you just Google my name, Jason Sweat, S-W-E-T-T, you'll find my various web presences. I have a site, angularonrails.com. That's a whole thing we didn't get into and I won't talk about very much, which is just I blogged there. I wrote a book. 
if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can see that definitely helps with the mm-hmm. consulting and, and selling consulting and contracting gigs and stuff like that. Um, and then my business website is benfranklinlabs.com. Nice. So you missed your calling. You should have been an R&B singer with that name. Here we go. Jesus, what? My family told me when I was a little kid, they told me I was related to Keith Sweat. Nice. But then I discovered later that those improbable. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, dear listener, we'll wrap up this episode, this epic this epic episode. This is great, though. Thanks so much for coming on, Jason. I loved it. Thanks a lot for having me on. Hey, folks. Just want to let you know that I recently upgraded my mentoring program to include six months of unlimited 24-7 access to my private Slack community. So in addition to unlimited email and phone calls, you can now ping me in Slack at your leisure. You can find out more at expensiveproblem.com slash mentoring. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time. Or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space. Or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.